welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. On 17 September 1978, the Camp David Accords was signed by Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. This was under the sponsorship of the United States President Jimmy Carter. The Accords provided for a full Israeli withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula, Egyptian territory, which had been captured during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, often called the Yom Kippur War. The following year, the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty was signed and the United Nations was asked to provide the peacekeeping forces for the Sinai Peninsula, mandated in the treaty. However, Russia, at Syria's request, vetoed this option. Syria had also been involved in the Arab-Israeli War. Due to the inability of the United Nations to provide a peacekeeping force, the United States took matters into its own hands and created the Multinational Force and Observers, or MFO for short. From 1982 to 1986, this force included an Australian helicopter contingent composed of Royal Australian Air Force and Royal Australian Navy personnel. This episode, Helicopters Over the Sinai, looks back at their service. To tell this little known story, I'm joined today by Group Captain Terry Wilson. He was Chief Planner for the Australian Defence Force's initial deployment to the MFO in the Sinai in 1982. He was also the first commander of the Australian contingent to the multi-force observers, and as such, commander of the combined Australian-New Zealand MFO Rotary Wing Aviation Unit from March until early November 1982. And also joining us online, Mike Galvin, who served as a Navy helicopter pilot in the Sinai in 1983. Later in his career, he was the flight commander in the frigate HMAS Canberra and retired from the Navy as a lieutenant commander in 1989. He then joined Qantas, serving for 31 years, becoming a 767 and 747 captain, and finally head of fleet operations for the airline. He retired from the airline in 2020 and is a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. And also joining us online, Graham Lunn. Graham is a Naval College classmate of Mike Galvin and also flew in the Sinai in 1983 and 1984. Later in his career, he had exchange service with the Royal New Zealand Navy. In 1985, Graham did a dissertation on the Anzac Rotary Wing Aviation Unit in the Sinai as part of his Master of Letters in the University of New England. Later, Michael retired from the Navy as a Lieutenant Commander in 1989. He then joined British Airways, initially flying 737s, and he was at the time the flight standards captain for all seven British Airways fleets, including the Concorde. Like Michael, he was also a 747 captain and is now flying the 787 Dreamliner. Welcome, gentlemen. First off, to further set the scene, Terry Wilson, this was not the first time the Australian Defence Force had flown helicopters in the Middle East. Can you briefly explain the earlier mission? Yes, the, uh, the earlier mission was our contribution to the United Nations Emergency Force 2 operation in the Sinai. It was uh, based in uh, Ishmaelia, the headquarters in Ishmaelia. We were in Ishmaelia uh, also on the uh, Suez Canal at Al Gala Airfield. Uh, the ADF uh, provided four Iroquois helicopters and about 46 personnel and uh, we operated uh, in support of the uh, battalions that were operating in the buffer zone that had been set up under the terms of the treaty. 
that buffer zone was just to the uh, to the east of the Suez Canal, running north to south from the Mediterranean downwards. It was about uh, 40 kilometres wide at its widest point and about 260 kilometres long. Our tasks there were mainly in support of the battalions in that buffer zone that were uh, making sure that the terms of the disengagement agreement between Egypt and Israel after the Arab-Israeli War of 1973 were being observed. So uh, we supported the uh, battalions in the zone that had set up uh, observation points, checkpoints, um, and were carrying out reconnaissance in that buffer zone to make sure the terms of the disengagement agreement were being met. Uh, the battalions uh, were from the north. We had the Swedish battalion, the Ghanaian battalion, Indonesians and the Finns. Um, and we operated there from... We first went there in 1976. The first operation was flown on July 1976 and uh, was withdrawn when the UNF-2 was disbanded in 1979. Thanks, Terry. Mike Galvin, what was the mission of the MFO? Yeah, the mission of the MFO was to supervise and ensure compliance with the Israel and Egyptian peace treaty that was signed in late 1981. As has just been mentioned, part of this treaty uh, compliance, Israel withdrew from the Sinai Peninsula, which it had captured from Egypt in the 1973 war. And to help is ease the anxieties, in particular on the Israeli side, the region was divided into four security zones three in the Egyptian Sinai area and one very small zone in Israel. El Gora, which was the name of the village in the northeast of Sinai where the MFO was headquartered, was less than two hours' drive from Jerusalem. Hence, one can understand the concerns Israel had from handing over all that territory. Each of the three Egyptian zones had a restriction on soldier numbers and military equipment allowed in that zone lower numbers in the zone closest to the Israeli border. And to ensure these limitations were being complied with, soldiers from some of the 11 participating countries patrolled the zones on foot. There were also observers, the O in the MFO, in the form of US State Department civilians who inspected Egyptian bases, installations and outposts to ensure compliance with tree numbers. These officials wore bright orange jumpsuits, and part of their mission was to report to both parties the results of their inspections. And the Rotary Wing Aviation Unit was formed by a combined Australian and New Zealand contingent and provided helicopter support to the force in the form of 10 white-painted UH-1H Iroquois helicopters. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Graham, noting that this was not a United Nations mission, what was the MFO's organisation and who actually led it? Well, of course, once uh, Russia vetoed in the Security Council becoming a UN force, uh, the US sponsored uh, a the formation of a multinational force. It was for, thought to be a requirement to make this civilian-led. Fortunately, they had uh, a retired US diplomat, Mr Lehman Hunt, who had been in charge of the Sinai Field Mission, so he was tapped to be the head. He set up initially working in Virginia, but not too long after that, the Italian government offered to uh, host the headquarters in Rome. So he moved him and his staff to Rome. They had liaison officers in Cairo and Tel Aviv. It was 
held necessary to have the military head of the force to not be the same nationality. So there was never going to be a US military general in charge. They managed to get a Norwegian general, General Bull Hansen. And he actually had some experience in the area because as a young junior officer, he'd been in the Sinai and UNF-1 back in 1956 and 1957. He set up the military headquarters in El Gora, uh, probably about 100 officers and other ranks in that headquarters. Then within that headquarters, of course, was the, uh, the air advisor who would task us in the Rotary Aviation Unit. Thanks, Grant. Terry Wilson, as mentioned before, you were involved in the early planning for the MFO mission. What were some of the considerations and what was the size of the contingent that Australia provided? And how did they actually get there? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. The, um, the main thing about the initial planning was uh, that, that I found was the influence of politics on the military planning. It was a... It was quite a, an interesting time in that uh, the Fraser government had announced that provide an air unit to the to the MFO in about October 1981, and uh, but they made it conditional on the participation of what became known as the EC4, which was the European Community Four. It was Britain, the Netherlands, Italy, Italy, and France. Um, now th- there'd been some diplomatic problems with that uh, because the uh, Israelis weren't prepared to accept those EC4 initially um, because uh, they'd, they'd made some extra conditions that d- didn't fit in with the peace treaty that had been signed between Israel and Egypt. They were talking about the Venice Declaration and uh, the, the self-determined for Palestin- Palestinians and uh, the Israelis were having none of that so that delayed the final decision on Australian participation. In fact, we couldn't have any contact with the MFO until an MFO party eventually came out on the 4th of February, um, 1982. Now, to give you some idea of the timeline, um, Admiral Sinnott was the Chief of the Defence Force staff at that stage and he'd, as the Chief Planner, he'd given me a couple of givens and the first was that we were to use HMAs Tobruk to, to take helicopters over to the, to the Sinai if helicopters were involved and he said there was also going to be a... It would be a joint unit. Um, so given that the MFO also had some some uh, deadlines, we had to be in the Sinai by the 20th of March and we had to start operations on the 25th of April. So here we are on the 4th of uh, February, not knowing what we're sending, meeting with the MFO. So... Um, Eventually, they, uh, they, in that meeting, which lasted two days, they asked for 12 helicopters. We said uh, we convinced them that they only needed 10 based on our previous experience. And uh, we'd already had discussions with the New Zealanders and we knew that they were prepared to provide two and some people. And we had a pretty good idea of what size their contingent would be. So from there, we, uh, we went into a frantic planning phase. Um, so with the Tobruk, the Tobruk uh, we had to have the uh, helicopters there by the 20th, so that meant that Tobruk had to leave on the 18th of February, so here we are on the 4th just starting some serious planning um, to get the organisation underway. Sounds like it was a pretty busy time then. It was, it was very busy and uh, the other thing we hadn't done is we hadn't done a recce of the Sinai and then we suddenly got permission to go for a recce so I went off on a recce in that time and we also had to form a joint unit. Instead of splitting off another unit because it had to be a joint unit, we uh, we formed a new unit 
which was principally Air Force, but we'd also been talking with Navy about their contribution and uh, they had given us a good idea of what they would provide and, uh, and also the Army. Uh, the tasks we were given were the helicopter operations, but we were also given a task of manning the, uh, the flight operations centre and doing the flight following for the MFO, for all the MFO aircraft from the north base. And we also had to operate a, uh, a fuel distribution and fuel quality control system for the north base. So that determined some of the people that we needed. Um, in the end, from the Navy side, we ended up with, uh, on the first deployment, we ended up with uh, four helicopter pilots for Iroquois, people with Iroquois experience, um, uh, a helicopter air crewmen. We had two air traffic services specialists and two other technical specialists. Yeah. You mentioned the New Zealanders. I'm, I'm boldly assuming the New Zealanders were incorporated in this unit. Well, they were uh, once we got over there. That was an interesting situation. Uh, we, ha we ended up with, we had uh, 99 people and eight helicopters, and New Zealanders had 30 people and two helicopters. Um, the New Zealand Contingent Commander, Noel Roger, always said that I gave him a, a carton of beer and he gave me uh, 20, 30 people and two helicopters. Sounds like a fair trade to me. <laughs> Mike Galvin, the Iroquois helicopters which you operated were made famous in the Vietnam War. Can you tell us a little bit about the helicopter itself? Yes, certainly. So the Bell... UH-1 uh, utility hel helicopter started off as a as a single-engine helicopter, two-bladed main rotor and tail rotor. It was first introduced into the U.S. Army in uh, 1959, and it was the first turbine-powered helicopter produced for the U.S. military. At that time, the uh, the U.S. military was designated all of helicopter variants with uh, Native American names, hence the, the name Iroquois. Uh, over the 30-year production period of the E helicopter, some 16,000 of these aircraft were produced and over 7,000 uh, did see service in Vietnam. And the first variant of the Iroquois was the UH-1 Alpha model. And then models were produced and improved right up to uh, the late 1990s with the, the Yankee model. The November model was uh, one of the more interesting variants in that, in that it was the first twin-engined Iroquois variant. Uh, the rotary wing aviation unit in the Sinai operated the, the UH-1H, the hotel model aircraft, which in Australia had been in service with the Air Force in 5 Squadron and 9 Squadron. At the same time, uh, Navy's HC-723 Squadron at Nowra operated the Bravo model. They had uh, seven in total. And the H model was a much sturdier, more robust model uh, with uh, an additional 1,000 pounds weight upgraded uh, Lycoming engine producing around 30% uh, greater output. It also had a much larger cabin allowing greater flexibility in troop transport and uh, medivac operations. And the H model itself was the most popular of all variants with over 5,000 produced. Because of the, the harsh operating environment in the Sinai, in particular uh, the sand uh, and sandstorms, the main rotors of the, the, uh, the rope wing Iroquois were fitted with rubber, with rubber boots along the leading edge of the main rotors, and this was to protect them from wear. And in addition, at the, at the completion of every flying day, uh, an internal engine wash was carried out to preserve the engines from the, from the issues of corrosion and uh, degradation uh, caused by uh, the sand ingestation that, uh, that we encountered every day during flying operations. So all in all, it was the perfect helicopter for, for that particular role. Thanks, Mike. Uh, 
Graham Lund, we've heard that the, the New Zealanders mentioned, but uh, what about the other nations that were involved in the MFO and what assets did they bring? Okay, well, obviously it was important, like any multinational force that it's broadly based, that didn't want to be seen as US dominated. So we actually ended up with 11 nations. Obviously, the Australians are important Kiwi cousins to make it an ANZAC rotary aviation unit. Uh, the Norwegian general in headquarters running running the military side of the show, and he had several uh, Norwegian aides with him. The British manned most of the headquarters uh, clerk-type jobs, and uh, all the other nations had people in the headquarters unit as well. Uh, the major troop elements were infantry battalions, and they were Colombian, Fijian, and the US in the South. They were light infantry battalions, only about, certainly for the Fijians and Colombians, about 500 each. And then to support that, the Italians, they had some minesweepers operating out of the, the South because uh, part of the charter was to ensure freedom of passage in the Straits of Tehran. The French provided the fixed wing part of the operation with some Transal C-160s and twin otters. The Netherlands were there. The Dutch had signalers and MPs. The Uruguayans provided transport and heavy engineering. And, of course, there was the civilian observer unit. That was some sort of 25, as Mike says, we called them Agent Oranges because of their bright orange uniform. And they were U.S. State Department secondment people or retired U.S. military people. So a fair mix of people. I think the Canadians might have been in UNF too. Was there a Canadian unit uh, involved in the EMFO? They were, they were asked several times by all the major players. Certainly Egypt and Israel and the US were keen for them to, to contribute, uh, but they didn't until we left. They, in fact, basically replaced us when Australia eventually withdrew from the multinational force and observers. Oh, thanks, Graham. Turning now to the MFO's operational service, Terry, you were the first Australian contingent commander. What were your challenges in establishing the operations? You've already mentioned the very short planning timeline that you had, but what was once you arrived, what was the, what was the scene? Well, we arrived to the force commander termed the period then that I was there, the Klondike period, um, and that, that says it all. Um, obviously, the... the the whole MFO organisation had been set up in a reasonable hurry, been set up pretty well, but when we got there, um, there was still a lot of construction going on. Things weren't ready. A lot of the, uh, lot of the support things weren't ready. Um, for example, when we arrived, uh, the, 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 troop, the main body arrived by a 707 at, uh, at Tel Aviv Airport, Ben Gurion Airport, and I made the mistake of driving them down through Tel Aviv to show them the beaches on the way. I'll, I'll mention why that's a mistake in a moment. But uh, when we got there, they, we found out that um, some of the accommodation wasn't ready um, and we ended up with uh, mixing the officers in with the other ranks accommodation so that uh, what was supposed to be two-man rooms became three-man rooms and things like that. So that was the first sort of thing. Um, there were problems with all, all sorts of different things, communications, uh, the, uh, um, the water supply to the base, um, various other uh, elements. The, the, the catering was uh, initially was good when uh, it was being run by the construction organisation that was still there building things. But when the E-Systems took over, they were the, uh, the contractors um, that had been chosen for some of the support functions. 
um, the catering went really bad into the stage where we had to go on to um, onto combat rations, and that caused us another problem because we eventually had a uh, uh, a fire in our where we'd taken we'd taken all our spares um, about ninety days worth of spares with us, and we had them stored in a forty by twenty tent on the airfield because our hangar wasn't ready. That was another thing that wasn't ready that was supposed to be ready, and. Uh, Anyway, we had Senator Susan Ryden visiting us on the 10th of April and we put on a show for her because we, the whole thing went up in flames, the whole tent went up in flames and we lost all those those spares, which ended up setting us back a little bit more in the, as we as we progressed further on. But uh, the actual, as far as the actual operations went, the start was very smooth. I mean, we, we had unloaded the helicopters from the Tobruk, we, uh, the main body arrived, we got uh, up to the Ashdod Wharf uh, on the 21st, had eight helicopters lined up on the wharf and we had an Israeli Defence Force liaison officer with us and uh, he said, have these been run since they've come off the Tobruk? And we said no and he said they'll never all get going. So we proved him wrong and flew the whole eight helicopters down to, uh, to Etam as it was then. So you flew the helicopters directly off the wharf? Directly off the wharf, yep. Somewhere I've got a good photo of uh, the Tobruk lying off the end of the wharf taken from my helicopter as we departed. But uh, the, uh, So from there on, we, uh, we started operations, in fact, uh, on the 23rd. I flew, flew our first missions on the 23rd of April. And initially they were, ba- they were aimed at familiarising us with the area. And uh, we had some challenges with the weather, of course, at that time because it was the calm scene season, there were dust storms. And we knew that we had a medevac uh, task coming up we had to be pre- prepared for that, so we had to get to know, particularly Zone C, where all the battalions were based very well, um, because we could be ha- having to do night medevacs and that thing. So we concentrated on preparing for that, and that went well. That went quite well. We were hampered a bit by the Israelis at that stage, because they still owned the Sinai, if you like, and uh, they put some restrictions on us that meant we had to give them 48 hours' notice of flights um, to get clearances. They tended to harass us at times. Uh, I remember flying up from the from the south, from the, down the Sharm El Sheikh area along the Gulf of Aqaba, and we were only at about 250 feet, and we had two A4s came to us head on and flew directly underneath us. A4s, they're the Skyhawks, Skyhawk yeah. fighters. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And we had sort of several instances of them harassing us like that. Yeah. And so with the medivacs, the medical evacuations, where where were you taking people? Were they going to hospitals in Israel? Well, well, that, well that, initially we were. We were taking people to hospitals, uh, the hospital in, in uh, Tel Aviv, and sometimes, depending on where it was in the zone, we'd take it to the hospital in Alat. But once the Egyptians took over on the 25th of, uh, of April, they were not keen for us to take any anybody to over to Israel, and they were insisting on we take them to Cairo, but we said that's not practical. So what we were doing was bringing them to the north base, or sometimes we might have taken them to the Egyptian hospital at Erorish. Mike, we've um, many people have heard of the Sinai, but they're probably not familiar with where it actually is and how big it is. Can you give us a quick explanation of the geography and climate and how that also affected flying? Yes, yeah, certainly. So the Sinai, it's a, it's a triangular-shaped uh, territory bounded on the west by the, the Gulf of Suez and the Suez Canal, and on the east by the state of Israel and the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, to the north lies the, the Mediterranean Sea and to the south, uh, the Red Sea. And the tip of the triangle is to the south at a place that's now called Sharm el-Sheikh. And uh, Sinai is basically a land bridge connecting Africa with Asia. Asia. 
some uh, 220 kilometres wide and about 390 kilometres long. And the, the geography of the, the region is basically divided into three parts. The northern region, which is where we were based, is a, it's a sand and gravel desert, basically. In the centre, there was a, a, a wadi carved limestone plateau. In the south, very rugged and inhospitable uh, mountainous region with mountains uh, up to 8,500 feet and uh, snow covered in winter with deep uh, wadis, gorges, etc. The land is very, very arid with very few oases. However, uh, Bedouin tribes did manage to eke out a nomadic existence across, across the region. I guess the flying challenges uh, can be uh, divided into two different kind of um, uh, issues associated with the geography. First, uh, in the north was, was the sand. Sandstorms uh, with tops of up to 40,000 feet and visibility that often reduced to less than 100 metres at their peak created great difficulties for navigation and also caused great wear and tear on the machinery. And uh, these sandstorms, when they came, could last for days. So flying operations uh, couldn't continue uh, when, the, when the visibility was reduced because all our flying was done uh, using visual navigation, basically. And in the south, the other challenge in the south was something that uh, that uh, us Navy people hadn't had a lot of experience in, in particular, was the swirling winds, uh, the updrafts, downdrafts, etc., associated with flying around the mountainous peaks in the centre. Uh, very, very hot temperatures, um, strong winds, swirling winds for approach and landing made uh, operations in the south uh, very, very challenging, but uh, something we took great pride in, in in carrying out successfully and efficiently. Thanks. Graeme, uh, what were some of the typical tasks for the helicopters? We've heard that uh, they were available for medivacs or medical evacuations. What else did they do? Well, obviously, uh, we were responsible for the battalion support for the Fijian Battalion and the Colombian Battalion. Uh, that was a majority of our flying. So you would uh, insert and extract into all the observation points and checkpoints. Sometimes that insertion and extraction would have to be low level. Uh, as a Sinai captain, you're expected to go in 50 feet or lower and uh, get within sort of 10 metres of the grid point you were given if it was a temporary observation post. Obviously, the normal observation posts and checkpoints were fixed installations. Um, resupply Friday morning was always uh, an enjoyable one. You'd fly around uh, delivering fresh food. Those troops certainly liked that when you arrived. They would always come out with big smiles. Logistics support, I can remember just simply flying around uh, with people from headquarters inspecting the toilets through the desert. Um, you would have border patrols. Initially, just daytime when I was there, the Israelis were worried about arms smuggling across the border, so we started doing night border patrols. You'd have uh, VIP flights, fly around the senior military people for the various um, the various contingents. And uh, the other main part, apart from battalion support, was those reconnaissance and verification missions where you would have uh, liaison officers, Egyptians, if you were in Egyptian territory, if you're doing Zone D, Israeli territory, you'd have an Israeli liaison officer. They could be quite long. Uh, you could spend, uh, you know, it would be three hours, or you could spend six hours a day if you're doing missions over near the canal zone. And, of course, uh, like any professional unit, 
we had an ongoing training commitment to make sure that uh, the more demanding aspects of the flying that we had to do, those night medivacs, the high temperature operations that Mike's talked about, the low level insertions. Um, I think the unit had some 50 hours each month where we'd have that because we had instructors in the unit that uh, would take that training on board. So that sounds like a fairly busy act period of activity. Was there any sort of downtime? Were you allowed to go on leave? Uh, yes, you had leave. It was quite popular to go up to Israel. It was quite popular to go across to Cairo. Um, generally, people would work five, six, seven days in a row, have a day or two off. I think about the, the longest period I had with uh, continuous days work was about 11 days, flying one, two, three, sometimes four in a day. And um, each pilot probably did around 50 hours a month flying. So it's fairly fairly hectic at times. Could I just add to that? Uh, the leave situation uh, when we first started was a bit of a problem because uh, there were some problems with uh, getting privileges and immunities on leave in, in Israel and uh, that wasn't resolved for about six or seven months. So, so people didn't have the opportunity to go on leave in Israel, which was a very attractive place, and that's why I said it was wrong to take them past Tel Aviv because uh, <laughs> I'd shown them the beaches, but they couldn't get there. Um, uh, but uh, they, they, they managed to, to occupy themselves in lots of other ways, and they became very innovative. And, and in fact, uh, the first thing they did was set up a recreation club, which was called the Anzac uh, Surf Club. It actually was a surf club. We had a we had a, a reel that had been brought by one of our flight sergeants who had been a, a surfer, and uh, we actually had some people get their bronze gold medals, the bronze uh, surf lifesaving medal, I should say, and uh, so that was the way we coped with the lack of leave of doing other things and being occupied on the base. There was some leave to to Egypt, but uh, um, that wasn't as attractive to our people as the western parts uh, in the, in Israel. Thanks. In fact, it's funny you mentioned the. Uh the Surf Lifesaving Club there because I vaguely recall a book had been written, uh, Bondi in the Sinai, which was the history of the of the MFO. Uh, Terry, how did the, the coordination work between all the different national components of the of the MFO? Well I think uh, it, it worked it worked very well and a lot of that was down to the force commander. Um, and with his previous peacekeeping experience and uh, and he was a true diplomat um, he set up his force headquarters and the way he operated meant that we got good coordination between all of the contingents. He held regular contingent commanders meetings, um, which he chaired, and we all got to know one another very well. Um, nine of the contingents were based on the, uh, on the north base, so that was another opportunity for us to get to know one another well face-to-face, -face, the contingents, and they, the contingents mixed, and that was contingent in the social scene as well where the contingents uh, did a lot of mixing and were invited to one another's uh, uh, messes, and particularly the battalions, the Fijians and the Colombians were very hospitable. So we all got to know how we, how we operated. The little differences in operations and whatnot um, were sorted out very amicably because we all got to know one another fairly well. So the, the coordination worked well. Um, the uh, the other thing about the coordination or the air tasking in particular was we had the Australian uh, Air Advisor in the headquarters and uh, with his assistance, which was one uh, Navy Lieutenant Commander and one Army Major, they set up the tasking system 
uh, whereby the, all the uh, demands on the, on the rotary-wing aviation unit went through that cell and they, they filled them, if you like, or prioritised them and then tasked us. And they based that on the Australian Joint uh, um, Tasking System. And it worked very well. So the coordination overall was 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 great. Uh, the uh, the U.S. battalion down south was a bit of an outlier. We didn't see them as much, um, but they they were just about self-supporting because they had their own ten helicopters down there, ten UH-1Hs again that just supported their battalion. Um, and the, I should mention about the coordination. Uh, we talked about it not being a U.S. A U.S. heavy peacekeeping force. The chief of staff to the force commander was a bit different to the force commander. He was a US Army colonel and he had some previous aviation experience. And um, unfortunately, he, he thought it should, the whole peacekeeping force should be run a bit like a brigade. And uh, that situation didn't quite work, uh, whereas the, the force commander managed to sort that out. But we spent quite a lot of our time um, trying to tell the, uh, the chief of staff that there were other ways of conducting flying operations other than the way they were conducted by the US Army. Um, so he tended to try and interfere with our operation quite a lot, but the force commander managed to handle that quite well and we it didn't affect us all that much. Yeah, so good, good force commander keeping his chief of staff under control. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Mike, uh, what was it like working in a predominantly Air Force unit and were there any differences in approach that you can recall? Just before I answer that that particular question, I might just just go one step further with what Terry was just mentioning about the operations of the US uh, versus the road tubing aviation unit in the north. Um, the, the the Australian and New Zealand contingent was far more experienced in helicopter operations than the, than the US Army. Most of their pilots were non-commissioned officers with very, very little experience. And... Um, they did suffer a number of casualties and accidents during the time that I was there and uh, throughout the whole period of rotary aviation unit serving, we did come out uh, accident-free. So one other slight difference between operating between uh, the our forces and the, the US forces to the south. But the as Terry mentioned before, the total size of the, the, the rotary unit was um, just over 100 and uh, around 20 pilots, so 12 RAF pilots, four Royal New Zealand Air Force pilots and four RAN pilots. And the RAN pilots were all uh, junior lieutenants, not that long out of basic helicopter flying training. And checking my logbook uh, the other day, I noted that uh, my total flying experience was around 500 hours when I started in Sinai. And as many may or may not know, all Navy pilot training in Australia had been conducted by the Air Force, and this included our helicopter conversion course that was run by Five Squadron at RAF, RAF Fairburn. So the Navy pilots who served in the road crewing aviation unit all had friends in the Air Force and colleagues that they had previously known. So this made the relationship uh, a very close and productive one where, to my knowledge, there were no issues at all. We, we basically wore a very similar flying flying suit and just got on with our business. In addition to the pilots, as, as also was mentioned by Terry, a number of other uh, roles were covered by REN personnel, personnel from, from air crewmen to, to ATC uh, officers and some safety equipment specialists. And just to mention a couple in particular, when I was across there, we had a, a leading seaman air crewman uh, by the name of Terry Garside, who continues now to serve, has become a commissioned officer and is currently the fleet aviation officer. And we also had um, 
very proudly can say we had the first uh, female member of the uh, aviation unit, an ATC officer by the, the name of uh, Marinda Lee, who served uh, in Sinai. So in summary, all I can say is that the operation uh, coordination was very collegiate uh, and a very, very uh, happy, happy relationship between all parties from what I could see. Okay, th- thanks for that, Mike. Um, yeah, it's good to hear that the uh, the ATCs or the air traffic controllers aren't forgotten about uh, in the, this activity. Thanks. I'd like to quickly uh, add to what Mike's saying there about the collegiate atmosphere. When I got to the Sinai, I was surprised that about a third of the pilots on the in the unit I actually personally knew. I'd either run across them at uh, Rathbase Pierce while I was doing pilots course or I'd uh, trained with them, or they'd been instructors when I was at Five Squadron in Canberra. So it wasn't surprising that we all uh, operated so well, um, operationally and socially, when I'd actually um, flown with a lot of them even before I got to the Middle East. Thanks. Uh, In this podcast, we cannot cover all of the activities the Australian helicopters uh, undertook in the MFO, but I'd like to ask each of the members to recall a particular incident that sticks in their mind from their tour. Uh, start, Terry, I'll start with you. Yes, well, uh, the particular incident I recall it relates a bit to what Graham was talking about, about uh, the, the, the difference between us and the US helicopter element. Um, during the early stages, we were, we were assisting with setting up some of the observation points and checkpoints, and uh, there was a, an observation post in the uh, in the southern part of Zone C, which was normally the US battalion's responsibility, and they'd be supported by their helicopters. And uh, as it tended to happen at times, they'd built a security fence around this observation point, and then, then they'd come along later with a big heavy generator that had to get inside. Um, so it had to be lifted over the security fence if possible. And they'd asked their own helicopter support unit to uh, to do the job and they'd said, no, it can't be done, it's uh, it's too difficult because this, this observation point was about 3,000 feet above sea level and the temperatures were getting quite warm. So the density altitudes were quite high and they said it was beyond their capability. So they... The uh, people that uh, wanted this generator lifted then came to, to us and asked us if we could do it. So we said, well, we'll have a look at it. So we had a good look at it. And we finally figured out that we could do it. And we, just to quickly run through, we did it quick by taking two helicopters down to this observation point. We started out, we got up at about four o'clock in the morning, um, obviously when it was in the cool of the day, flew down there just before first light. Um, and we had, we lightened up the helicopter that was going to do the lifting and it arrived, there was just enough fuel to do the lift and the other helicopter we carried a couple of fuel bladders with extra fuel on it. So we uh, we lifted this generator, it was very heavy and we only just got it over the fence but we did the job and uh, then refilled from the bladders and went back to Algora. So that was just an example of an incident or a job that we did that established our reputation as being the people who can do the job and do it safely. Yeah, just get the job done. Yep. Mike, what are your thoughts? Look, I, I um, have a, many, many fond memories and uh, of my time in Sinai, but one, one of the absolute highlights to me was an opportunity to fly a mission of observers down to the southern town of uh, St Catherine, located at the foot of Mount Sinai in the southern part um, of the peninsula. This was a really prized 
mission done about once a month or so. And um, if lucky, the Egyptian uh, liaison officer who came with us while the inspections were being done would take us for a tour of the monastery at St. Catherine's. And this is one of the oldest uh, monasteries in the world, Eastern Orthodox monastery built in the 6th century, one of the oldest uh, working Christian monasteries ever. Uh, very, very, very remote, uh, very, very well preserved. Uh, it you know, had the world's oldest continually operating library, the second only in size to the Vatican. It, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a place that many Christians believe uh, Moses uh, was given the Ten Commandments and uh, the burning bush stories that uh, some may have heard from biblical times. So it was just a privilege to be able to be in a part of the world with so much very, very old history and so much modern history and, and the chance to see to see this building operated by Eastern Orthodox uh, church people uh, in real time was, was, was an absolute highlight for me. It sounds very interesting. It certainly was. I did manage to go back about 25, 30 years later as a tourist, uh, and, and many, many, many more people were going through, through, um, through, the, through the site. When I was there, when we were there, it was um, very, very few lucky people who did get to see it. Graham, what are your thoughts? Well, Terry's already mentioned the, um, the reputation we had for getting the job done, and a lot of that was down to the SAR and Medivac operations that we did. Uh, it was important that we were impartial. So, in fact, the very first one was a Bedouin child that had been uh, stung by a scorpion. So it wasn't just our own people that we did SAR and Medivac for and our own casualties. I can remember two. One was uh, just after Christmas when I was there, there had been um, an Egyptian explosive ordnance disposal team working in a minefield that had managed to set off one of the mines that they were trying to lift. So I was launched to go down there. I think my co-part was uh, another Navy part, Lieutenant Steve Bulls, and uh, I gingerly landed as close to the casualties as I could, making sure my skids went into the tyre tracks. And then I watched with real admiration as the U.S. Army flight surgeon and his medic walked gingerly over to assess. Uh, there's actually five dead and five wounded. Uh, we flew them back to Ellerish Hospital and we got the personal thanks of the Egyptian Brigadier General the next day. And then for the Israeli side, there's actually an incident where uh, a flight of A4 Skyhawks again had been running down the coast, meant to turn left and uh, go down uh, just inside the Israeli border in Zone D. One of them didn't. We still don't know what happened. He carried on, eventually crashed. One of our checkpoints saw the crash. It was night time. Uh, so I hit it off. I had a, an Air Force first officer this time. An Israeli aircraft overhead would drop a flare. As he dropped the flare, uh, we'd dive down into a wadi, down to about 50 feet, and search the wadi looking for the crash site and hopefully looking for the pilot. And then as soon as the flare went out, we'd quickly level and uh, pull up out of that wadi. And that certainly earned uh, a lot of gratitude from the Israeli unit involved. They actually invited us over the following month for a presentation at their base. You, you mentioned SAR. What, what does that acronym stand for? So, so, so Medivac, of course, is medical evacuation, SAR, search and rescue. 
by this stage, when I was there, 83, 84, we would have two aircraft, two uh, search and rescue aircraft available 24 hours a day with two crews on standby. Oh, thank you. Now, no podcast about the MFO would be complete without discussing the tragic assassination of the first MFO chief, Mr. Lehman Hunt, in Rome on the 15th of February 1984. Mike Galvin, what were the circumstances and why was he killed? Yes, it certainly was a tragedy. Um, Lehman Hunt, who was mentioned earlier, was the the first Director General of the MFO headquarters uh, in Rome, Italy. And uh, 15th of February 1984, he was driving home to his house where, where he lived in Rome in an armoured car and was attacked by three gunmen uh, with the automatic weapons. None of the bullets actually pierced the car, but one of the assassinators uh, leapt up onto the boot of the car and was able to get a bullet through the, gl- the back glass, between the glass and a seal in the, in the back uh, window. One shot came through and uh, he was killed almost instantly. And this was an assassination attempt by a group called the Red Brigade, which was uh, uh, active all over all over Europe at that time. In fact, there were quite a few different um, terror groups at the time. It was a, a left-wing communist communist group. But the death of um, of uh, Lehman Hunt wasn't the only tragedy that uh, that befell the the MFO. There was a couple of uh, Iroquois accidents uh, that the the American forces um, encountered. But the biggest one and the worst one was one of the worst aviation disasters of all time, an absolute tragedy. It was um, Arrow Air Flight 1285. And what it was, it was a DC-8 that was repatriating the American forces. They they did their six-month rotation like us. The 101st Airborne, which is one of the elite American divisions, was being repatriated after their time back to the US in this uh, old DC-8 that was chartered. And they flew from Cairo to Cologne um, onto Gandor in uh, Newfoundland. And um, during their refuelling stop in Newfoundland, uh, it did start to snow. The aircraft uh, was refuelled, reloaded. They all jumped on board. And after takeoff, um, less than half a mile from the airport, the aircraft crashed on takeoff, killing 248 American military forces and all eight crew. And this was a result of, uh, of ice contamination on the fuselage, the leading edge, and also uh, the fact that they use standardised weights, which is normal in aircraft operations for passengers, rather than weighing them, but they grossly underestimated the weight of the aircraft. So, yeah, an absolute tragedy of the whole the whole division being being uh, being wiped out in in one tragic accident, and uh, that accident um, in Canada was uh, was the, the the most horrific accident they had in Canada for many many years. Terry, uh, as mentioned previously, um, Australia withdrew its helicopter contingent. Uh, why was that, and what was the later involvement that Australia had with the MFO? The original commitment of the Fraser government was for two years and that went uh, from April uh, 1982 to April 1984. And In that period, of course, the uh, the Hawke government 
came to power, the Hawke Labor government, and uh, part of their election platform was to withdraw from the Middle East, but they were convinced to leave the uh, the contingent there until the end, uh, to, till the April 84 deadline. Um, the MFA, of course, was very keen to keep us, as were the receiving states, Egypt and Israel, and a lot of pressure came on the government to keep us there. And eventually the decision was made after New Zealand had made a decision to extend uh, to extend the Australian contingent to April 1986. There was no further commitment after that, and so the contingent was withdrawn. Um, the, uh, the Australian government went back, or the ADF went back there in 1993, and it's been there ever since, with a small contingent of about 26 to 29 people from all three services, and uh, carrying out uh, administrative security, uh, all sorts of different tasks, small tasks there. But the important thing is that since 1993, we've had two Australians appointed as the force commander of the MFO, which goes to say something about our reputation as a peacekeeping nation. But no helicopters. No helicopters, unfortunately. Okay. To conclude, I'd like to ask our panel what their thoughts are on the legacy of the ADF's contribution to the MFO and the Sinai. Firstly, Terry. Well, I think our legacy from the point of view of my perspective as being there when we first started the helicopter operation is that because we we operated with the observers who are a very important part of the mission and in doing that, we came in close contact with the liaison officers. I think we played a, a major role in establishing the, uh, the the trust and the respect of the receiving states, that's Egypt and Israel. And that, of course, led to the, uh, the MFO being, I think, probably one of the most successful peacekeeping forces that it's ever been, and it's still there today. Thanks, Terry. Mike Galvin. Look, I, I, I see... The, the, the legacy is the proof in the pudding. Coming up almost 40 years since the MFO was was um, first started operations, it's still continuing today. And in that time, Israel and Egypt have had almost 40 years of peace, something they hadn't experienced in the previous 40 years. To me, it's an immense sense of pride that in that very volatile region of the world, we, from an individual level, an ADF level, and from a country level, made a contribution to that piece, and Australia played its part as a medium-sized global participant in assisting that piece. Thanks, Mike. And finally, Graham Lunn. Yeah, as Mike says, you know, the, the area, the Sinai, they'd been averaging one war a decade until the multinational force and observers was put in place. Uh, in 1981, before Terry took the first unit there in early 82, the formation and deployment of the unit had actually been the major the major foreign policy and defence debate of 1981 in Australia. So for me, the legacy was that uh, a recognition by both the politicians and the Australian public that while it might not necessarily have been in Australia's immediate strategic interests to be there, it was definitely in its diplomatic interests. And uh, to be a middle power, you need to put people on the ground. Thanks, Graham. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Terry Wilson, Michael Galvin and Graham Lunn. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us 
And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.